I went to an all-boys high school. It sucked. I hated it. Most of the guys I went to school with were okay, but I just fucking hated it. When people wax nostalgic on their high school years, they have a tendency to prop themselves up as either the most popular kid in school or some romantic rebel type, some tragic misfit loner, but nobody bugged me too much. I wasn't bullied or anything. I just fucking hated going to that school. What got me through it, though, was the music. Sometimes I wonder if I never went to that school how my life would have turned out. Did I cling to the music so tightly, have such an affinity for it because of my surroundings? The hour it took me to get to the school and the hour it took me to get home afforded me a chance to do nothing but bond with the bands playing nonstop in my headphones on the subways and on the buses to and from home. I was angry and frustrated, as most people are at that age, but I was lucky enough to find a music that not only matched my anger but exceeded it tenfold. Getting into heavy metal wasn't so much a leisurely pursuit as it was a compulsion, almost respite from my own rage. What started with Kiss and Motley Crue soon grew into Metallica and Slayer. I was lucky that metal was undergoing a transformation at the time, and the lines drawn in the sand dividing metal and punk were being breached in the form of crossover music, uniting forces through bands like Stormtroopers of Death, Suicidal Tendencies, Corrosion of Conformity, The Accused, uh, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, Agnostic Front, and even the Bad Brains. The advent of crossover allowed punk labels to take out ad space in metal magazines while skate mags like Thrasher covered bands that were incorporating more metallic elements. Through both streams, I stumbled upon Black Flag and their monumental album, My War. I've been listening to music for a long time with an unwavering objective to find the angriest, heaviest, most intense albums I could get my hands on. My War is the soundtrack to pure rebellion and the angriest record I've ever heard in my life. It's ugly, it's redundant, it's unrelenting. Critics and fans alike initially hated this record. Maybe it needed to sit and cool off for 10 years before anyone started hailing it as a classic, but that's usually the story with most classics. Now, meanwhile, I was supplementing my avid music search with college radio. Not as much of a voice today as it was back then, but before there was the internet, pre-Lollapalooza, pre-Alternative Nation, pre-Nirvana, there was college radio, a beacon at the end of a tunnel that had been eroded for people like me by disposable pop music, silly hairspray bands, and rotting old cliched Satanism in music. Music historians like to paint a picture of a big bang with Nirvana's Nevermind album and their Smells Like Teen Spirit song as the match that triggered the explosion, where everything was detonated and flipped upside down overnight. But it wasn't like that at all. Listening to college radio a few years before Nevermind already had me exposed to The Minutemen, The Misfits, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mud Honey, Jane's Addiction, The Bad Brains... No Means No, Lydia Lunch, The Dead Kennedys. But somewhere between the hours of 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. one night, a song came through my radio that blew me away. I can't remember if it was playing on either CKLN or CIUT or the college radio station I eventually worked at, CHRY, but it was the Rollins Band with a song called Do It. 
The singer's voice was strangely familiar to me and quickly and 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 I quickly realized it was the same singer on Black Flag's My War, Henry Rollins. None of the anger had dissipated with his new outfit. In fact, it seemed to have grown. I waited until the DJ ran through the playlist, jotted down the name, and bought Lifetime and the Do It EP by the Rollins Band. It's been a curious trend in recent years for rock pundits to post up and prattle on about their best of lists or top 10 lists. Some lists are even top 100s, and they range from best singers to best albums to best singles, etc., etc., etc. On none of these lists have I ever seen Lifetime by the Rollins Band. It's sad because it's an impenetrable album full of heaviness and rawness, bitterness and rage. Singer Henry Rollins eventually transcended the music on sheer charisma, venturing into acting, journalism, and the distinguished post of spoken word artist. These extracurricular activities may have cost him a few cool points over the years with cooler-than-thou hipster factions, but I doubt he loses sleep over it. In fact, it was on his early jaunts of spoken word that I managed to catch him perform while I was still in high school. That night, he talked for almost two hours, but it was his 20-minute talk about his old high school days that really won me over. He spoke about the all-boys school he attended, his teachers, his classmates, and his relationship with both. His story was what I was going through at the time. Hell, I was even at the show with two of my schoolmates. I had already identified with him through the music, but this was now kind of getting personal. After this show, I always kept abreast of what he was doing, whether I ended up buying it or not. Of course, I ended up playing in bands myself, and I have since been able to travel the world because of it. In 2003, I was given a chance to do a radio show. I took it. This eventually got me thinking about doing spoken word shows myself. I tried it. I did a couple of spoken word tours and even put out a record. But as much as I loved the experience, I didn't want to be Henry Jr. or Jello Biafra Jr. And it took eight years, till just this past August, in fact, for the Wacken Open Air Festival in Germany to ask me to try my hand at it again. Eight years. Putting my own spin on the format and calling it lectures, it was a success. I loved it. I think the audiences were entertained, and as it stands today, I'm ready for more. But what really felt satisfying was that I shared the slot during the festival's four days with Henry. I took the first two days, and he took the second two. Knowing everything that led up to these shows definitely made it feel like it was full circle. Now, I must say that I had no intention of doing a podcast with Henry. All I wanted to do while we were both at Vakken was hand him the recording I had made of the show I saw him speak at when I was in high school. And when I did that and I handed it to him, he was most affable, and I started to get ahead of myself and think that maybe I could round him up for a podcast. Luckily, we were staying at the same hotel for two days, and I knew I'd be bumping into him time and again. When I finally did gather up enough nerve to ask him, it was already too late. His shuttle from the festival grounds to our hotel took two and a half hours rather than the usual 60 minutes. He had a flight to catch in two hours. He had just finished a spoken word gig himself, so... He was naturally drained, but sometimes I can be stubbornly persistent and often with negative results. However, not in this case. 
To my surprise, and against his better judgment, Henry agreed to the podcast, knowing that this was the same guy who wrote the lyrics to a song called Beat My Head Against the Wall. To say I was nervous is an understatement. I've met Henry a couple of times over the years and all with zero to negative results. We've even discussed those moments on previous on a previous episode of this podcast. So I guess with all this, I should have prepared for the podcast before I asked him to be on it, but I brazenly threw caution to the wind and opted not to while I waited to spring this podcast idea on him. In hindsight, I, I really cannot believe I did that. I, I really cannot believe I did no research. I just winged it, which is insane. But I just wanted to stay the course and keep with what this podcast is meant to be, which is an unrehearsed, informal conversation rather than uh, a hardline interview. So what you are about to hear is a a very nervous version of myself trying very hard not to blow it in front of someone I've been listening to for most of my life. B, an audio primer on how to kill somebody with kindness when pushed up against a wall. And C, the giddy version of myself when midway through the podcast realized I was actually hanging out with Henry. There are a few people to thank for this podcast. Firstly, the Vakken Open Air Festival, who booked me next to Henry. Thank you very much. And Sam, our Vakken liaison at the hotel. She really helped me get this podcast happening. So, Sam, thank you very much. Of course, as always, Blue Mic Microphones for providing me with the Yeti mics for the festival. And Henry Rollins himself for being pretty cool about the whole thing. Something... I might not have been if put in the same position. So, check this out. It's Henry Rollins on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. further ado, the official Danko Jones podcast has started, and today, my very special guest uh, in this makeshift studio uh, at the Radisson across from the Hamburg airport, Mr. Henry Rollins is here. I just want to say it is an honor to have you here. I know you are have no or little time to do this, but you've done this for, for me, so I thank you very much. You just spoke at the, the Wacken, Wacken Open Air um, I did the same the first two days. You did the second two days. How did it go? It was fine. It was a good time. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, you know, with uh, the metal audience, you, you've you've been, uh, I don't know, I think there's been some sort of, uh, you've been quite cautious around metal crowds uh, over the years. I'm just wondering how, how you were able to connect with them today. Well, they're very friendly people. I mean, if you want to generalize, Metal people are some of the friendliest, most open-minded music people you'll meet anywhere, where sometimes the punk rockers are too cool for school and the hipsters kind of sneer at you because you're old or you don't have something in your ear or whatever. Metal people, I have found, just to, you kind of come as you are and they're exceedingly friendly, not stupid. And, you know, they get a bad rap. People, oh, you're dumb and you're violent. They're quite often neither. And, and I listen to a lot of metal, so it's not a music I'm 
foreign from and a lot of the bands they like I like them too I have a lot of those records so it the 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 event itself was fine I mean I've done on my own festivals like download and you know whatever they give me I do it and the two shows here were great um, I told you yes uh, believe yesterday when we first met at Vakken you were on your way there um, doing the first two days of spoken word, I did a lecture. I came out as dressed up like a university professor, much like the professors I had. And I had a bow tie, a tweed jacket. I did the patches. I didn't want to do what you do, but I still wanted to get on stage in that medium and see how it feels. I've done it before. I did it uh, years ago. It's still always very mentally taxing as opposed to playing a, a rock and roll show where you have volume to help you out. Um, and I just wanted to say, and I gave you this recording that I did in 89 when I was in high school, when I saw you speak at the back of the Rivoli Club in Toronto. Um, it's kind of come in full circle, and it's just, uh, I just, it just, it just meant a lot for me to, 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 to be on the bill with you. And I uh, just wanted to say that. Well, when, thank you. When you uh, spoke in 89, you talked about the 10-year reunion of your high school and how you missed it. But you went back and you started talking about all these teachers you had. I was in that kind of high school at the time talking, uh, uh, watching you talk. Those teachers that you had were my teachers. And uh, I made that recording and I listened to that all throughout high school. And it got me through high school because there was someone who was doing something that I wanted to do that went through that whole process. I just wanted to say that to you. Oh, cool. Thanks. So, um, and I just want to talk about the, uh, the the movie corner you had that that kind of launched into the uh, the Henry Rollins uh, show on IFC. Now, uh, why didn't it go for a second season? Because we stopped doing the film show and started doing a show with like interviews and bands. So it just kind of mutated. But why didn't it go for like another round? Well, that show did two years. Yeah, and then. They said, well, let's change it up and have you do some documentaries. And so they gave me a budget, oh. and I went out and uh, did a documentary in South Africa, one in Northern Ireland, and one in Israel. And then they turned into kind of like a comedy channel. You know, they kind of changed their focus. And recently, the guy who ran it, uh, he left, and he's working at a new company, and he immediately called me and said, hey, uh, I want you to do some stuff over here, so we're actually working on a project right now we're actually putting something together that will enact in september and and hopefully that leads to something else and something else and you know this thing goes on i hope but um he's a good guy and i four years of the independent film channel was a, a pretty good run but th there's a thing you know it's other people's money and I don't have a great deal of control over that. And I think we did a really good show, especially the second season when we had Gore Vidal and mm -hmm. um, Larry Flint was very interesting, uh, Werner Herzog, people like that. Where I, I think we did you know, good interviews. The bands were great. We had Slayer. We had Iggy. We had Dinosaur Jr. It was all pretty cool. And I still get a lot of friendly letters about that show. But, you know, IFC, you know, they took the money and went elsewhere. It was a very expensive show to do. I think that's what kind of made them a little gun-shy. Um, you uh, mentioned all the bands. Rollins Band played as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I was on tour in 06, and the opening band, their sound man, was Tio Von uh, Van Rock. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me that you guys were about to do a tour. 
We did a tour in 2006. Yeah, and yep. he was just uh, getting ready f- to do that. Um, where, where does the Rollins band stand today? I don't have a band. I don't uh, have any intention on making any music unless something really extraordinary happens. I, I just don't think lyrically anymore. It was a thing I was doing, and then I stopped doing it. And rather than go rehash the past, which I have no interest in doing, um, I just stopped doing music. I read a quote that you said uh, you miss it every day. Sure, I miss it, but I also miss sleeping late and eating pizza. It doesn't mean I can do it. Um, To go on stage and sing 30-year-old songs, it might be for someone else to do, but not me. It does not interest me. I don't want to do it. Mm, So I want to stay in the present. And to do that, I have to be in 2012. To sing a 25-year-old song at age 51... It just, I'll watch someone else do it, some other band. I just, I don't want to do it. And so since I don't think lyrically anymore, I just went out of the music thing years ago and said, well, what else is there out there in the world for me to do? And at this point, it takes about seven days a week for me to, to keep up with it. There's, I'm doing a whole lot of stuff. Yeah, I know. I, I You know, I only bring up the Rollins band because uh, I wanted to throw our band in the ring there and and offer our services. Oh, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I don't really think lyrically anymore. I mean, it's just a form that I don't that doesn't address anything that I'm going through. I'm not putting it down. It's just that it's just uh, I'm not emotionally in need of writing about something like you know if when you're in a relationship and the female leaves or you leave or whatever. I already wrote that song for myself. Mm. As far as being angry at the man or whatever. I wrote that song. I wrote it a few times. And while I'm still angry at the man, now I go, you know, I can, I, I go at him in, in a different way. Right. Um, but there's nothing more song-wise for me to write. And there's nothing about making music, making an album, and touring the world doing it that I don't really know a lot about already. And so I am not interested in doing something that I know so well. I'd rather do something that throws me a, a few curveballs now and then, keeps the blood thin. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I would just listen to uh, the later, uh, the second period of Rollins' band with uh, Mother Superior. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how they were before they joined up with you, but I assume that they were a three-piece. Mm-hmm. We're a three-piece. We play rock. And I've always listened to those records going, we can do this. So I've always wanted come up to you and just say what I just said. Well, I appreciate but that. It's after the fact, so I, that's cool. I just, at least I said it. Um, now, um, when we, we played in 05 uh, in New York, we played the Mercury Lounge with uh, M- M- Watt and uh, uh, Kira's band, uh, Dos. Mm-hmm. Dos or Dos. 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 And um, Kira mentioned in the dressing room that you were working on a book on Stalin. I was, I was reading one, not writing she one. To, she, okay, well, well I, I, I wrote, mean to throw I, her under I, the bus. I wrote a, well, no, no, she probably misunderstood me. Oh, I wrote a very long thing, like 10, 11,000 words on Stalin, but it's not a book. It's a piece of a book called Rumanitarian, and uh, I may have shown part of it to her, but uh, no, it's not a whole book. I'm not a historian. I wrote a very weird abstract thing about Stalin after oh, having okay. read so much about him. I wrote a thing about uh, the mindset. Uh, basically, I wrote a thing uh, as his great-grandson, because he has a great-grandson. Mm. 
And the way the triptych goes with Russian names, you the the names uh, like every three generations, you have the same name as your great grandfather. And mm -hmm. this guy, this great grandchild, the son has the same name as Stalin, uh, whatever Zhugashvili, uh, the, la the 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 real, the, yeah. the real last name. And there was an article in the newspaper about this guy. He's just some little kid. And I, I said, damn, that's... And the, the town's really into it. I mean, this is, a, I guess, is some part of Georgia. They really like Stalin. And the, the, the okay. grandson is like, well, he was a great man. And there's a lot of people in Russia who still stick up for Stalin. I mean, I'm sure there's people in, in Cambodia who still think Pol Pot was the answer. I mean, there's always some battered wife somewhere who will stand up for right. their man. Right. And you can go to the Kremlin right now and there's some weeping woman keeping Stalin's grave clean, I'm sure. Um, that's just how that, you know, that kind of mental slavery is. But yeah, I, I wrote quite a big wad of writing at one point on Stalin. I was very satisfied with that writing. <laughs> I, I, okay, I enjoyed it. Since 05, I've been kind of watching every release that you've done and I have I had yet to see that book on Stalin because that's what she said but well no it, it's just a, clarify that it's a chapter it's yeah, in okay. a book called Rumanitarian and I forget what the piece is called but it's in there and okay. it's a pretty weird piece of writing okay I, I yeah because I have um I haven't read the mad da uh the mad dash but I did read a dull roar mm -hmm. and a preferred blur so oh, uh, thanks yeah and I noticed that the last book that you put out was actually um photographs mm -hmm. Is this uh, the new, like, is this a new area or just, just uh, something that you... Well, it's, it's, I do, I take a lot of photographs all over the world. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm a good way into the next photo book, which will come out uh, probably in 2014. Uh, just, I just need a, a, a few more, there's a few more countries I want to get to and see if I can have some good luck and get some good images. And then uh, I'll have to do the writing, which is very, very time intensive. And see, you know, see what, what how the book shakes out. But as it is now, uh, the book, the next photo book looks pretty cool. I'm very happy with it. It's photos from uh, Uganda, Southern Sudan, North Korea, Mongolia, Bhutan, Vietnam, India. Uh, where else? Uh, uh, Nepal. Yeah, and and, and uh, Haiti and uh, Cuba, and and so there'll probably be some more. Uh, Central Asian countries I'll, I'll be going to in the next several months. I'll be back in uh, southern Sudan probably by February it, to the, going to the western part near uh, Darfur where I do some humanitarian work out there. And so I'll be mm -hmm. bringing my camera, of course. And so hopefully there'll be some interesting uh, photos I'll get from there. Oh, well, that's great. Um, I, 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 I know that you've taken photos, uh, you take photos and all that stuff. And I know you said you don't want to relive the past. You put out Get in the Van. Um, is there, could, do you have enough material to put out something between Get in the Van and, and, and today? Like everything that happened around that time? What, that journal entries? Not journal entries, but like photographs no. that document that kind of No, era? I didn't have a camera in those days. Oh, okay. No, we were very poor. Um, there's photos of me, but not photos I took. Right. Now, I had a camera in high school, and uh, my friend Ian Mackay and I, we, mm -hmm. we both had taken darkroom lessons, so we knew how to develop, and we used to develop our own, our own photos. We uh, would borrow a friend's darkroom, and we developed our own photos quite a bit. Did a pretty good job. Um, and then I lost that camera. I have no idea where it went. I bought it used off some guy in high school, and it's, it, it's gone. 
And then I, I, I endured many years of being, you know, broke. And only, you know, a, a while ago I started, you know, being able to afford a thing like a camera. And at one point I had kind of come to the, the end of the limitations of what camera gear I had. And a, a woman who photographs me quite a bit said, well, let's, let's, uh, let's get you a real camera that you can really work with because you definitely have something to give, the, you know. And so I got a real, a real body and some good lenses. And that was many years ago. And I've just been kind of going at it ever since. Right. Um, a lot of the, 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 the series, are you going to continue with the Mad Dash, uh, Preferred Blur, that kind of mm -hmm. journal entry way yeah, of the, books? The, yeah, the new, the new one is called A Grim Detail. Ah, okay. And it's almost finished. It's, uh, it's from 2009, 2010. It's done. It's just uh, it's in its fourth draft. I was going to try and put it out in November. No way. It'll be out. I'm doing two books next year, and it'll be uh, at the earliest March, April now, I think, if I can get some time maybe this December to really work on it. Okay. Yeah, yeah um, I've, I've always wanted to know because uh, I, I have a lot of your books. In fact, when I was at that speaking show in 89, I bought End to End, mm. and you signed that. <clears throat> and those were kind of just like kind of prose entries like – here and there. Yeah, I'm not a disciplined writer. I, I've always I, I wanted just, to I just know. Wrote them. Yeah, wrote I always wanted to know if you were going to tackle like a full book of fiction. No, or? I mean, I, I wrote a, a book, basically fiction based, called Solipsist. And it's just a lot of, uh, you know, weird short stories or just weird, mm -hmm. you know, mind spasms. And Rumanitarian is the same. Uh, I don't write much like that. Uh, the, the writing I did in the photo book is kind of reminiscent of that, kind of like a very aggressive, abstract, prismatic look on reality, and it becomes fictional. Uh, but I don't really write like that very often. I just don't really think like that very often. I don't really think artistically. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, I know uh, I'm kind of watching the clock here because I, I, I feel for your itinerary. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I mean, I could probably talk to you about you for another two hours. Oh, I appreciate that. But uh, I understand you're under the gun here. Um, we are literally across the airport here. And uh, touring myself, I, I know I end up giving half my energy away to making sure I'm at the gate. So if uh, you're pressed for time, man, it's, it's all good. Okay. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to know also, I just had some bullet points here. Um, is there a, with, with something I, that's making me curious is I've heard every time I would go record shopping on tour, um, sometimes someone who would take me to a city's record stores would say that, you know, uh, Henry was here or there. He was. He goes to this store. It was a, so. It's always a place I want to visit to see what kind of stuff they have. Now with record stores closing, this is a completely off top. I'm going. I'm taking a, a turn here. Uh, with record stores closing, do you manage to? How much record buying do you do? My rule is I buy minimum one record a day, every single day. Damn. Uh, minimum. And what I usually do is uh, stack them up on Discogs. And after every show, I pick one or two and just hit order. And um, then if there's record stores I can get to, I go into them. And if there's stuff there I want, I just get all of it. Um, 
And so my record collection takes up the entirety of a three-car garage mm. uh, with, it's all, you know, I had carpenters come in and like build shelves and it's pretty well organized. And there's drawers of, of cassettes and dats and, and then there's a basement full of master tapes and uh, a whole archive room for flyers and other things. So a lot of work goes into all of that. And I try and listen, when I'm off the road, I try and listen to two to four LPs a night. I just pick four and I just, you know, line them up and I just listen to them. And uh, sometimes it's listen for the hell of listening or just I, sometimes I make notes because I might use them in the, my radio show later. Or, you know, I, I just like to listen to music. And so I do a lot of record buying online. A lot of the great record stores are gone, but... yeah. There are a lot of really good record stores that are still around. Uh, record stores in Europe are fantastic. There's a lot of great record stores in Germany. Uh, Berlin, fantastic record stores. Uh, Scandinavia has some of the last tranches of really good vinyl. And you'll pay. I mean, they're not... Some of these stores are... There's uh, one in, in Copenhagen, which is just... The guy's a, a bandit, but he's got some amazing things there. And... This year I was in uh, Finland, in Helsinki, and I was in a record store, and I always go to the weird section. And I found these records that looked very odd and interesting, so I brought them to the counter, and I asked the guy, I said, can you put these on for me? And he said, yeah, because he's looking to sell them. So he played a moment of each one of the records. I said, I'll buy all of those. Um, is there anything else like those records? Because they're all local Finnish kind of freak-out bands. Right. And, you know, all the, all the records are hand-numbered. There's not many of them, like you know, 150, 200. And he goes, yeah, this, he said, there's a huge scene here. I said, well, I know there's kind of a noisy, drony scene in Denmark. I have that pretty well covered, but I didn't know about Finland. He said, man, Helsinki's hopping with all these bands that record at home. They do shows in their living room. It's real small. And some ba one band uh, does shows, and they cook you dinner because it's, all, it's so small. There's like eight people. And I said, well, I want to know more about this. He said, well, th this lady's pretty interesting and this, that. And I just said, just, I'll buy all of it. And I got it home and I played it all. I, I can't even pronounce the names of these bands because it's like eight syllables and, you know, right. your mouth falls apart. But I liked every one of these records. And it had me going to Discogs and eBay and all of this scouring all over the Internet for months now. And over the last several months, I've acquired like this ridiculous amount of records from Finland. And it's, it makes up a good chunk of my listening. It's what I was listening to in my room last night. And it's just some weird, really far out there music. And so there's always new music to find. Either it's new to your ears or the band is very young. And so my only dilemma is I don't have enough time. And at this point, I... I don't know if I'm going to get all the records I have listened to because, you know, I don't know how many years I have left. But, like, there's a label in America called American Tapes, and it's basically a noise label. And the guy hand-makes every record. And he'll make, like, 10 of these, 15 of those. His name is John Olson. He's, he's quite amazing. And his main band is called Wolf Eyes, but he's got, like, four yeah. other bands. Okay. Dead Machines and all, Spikes and all this other stuff. He's got, like, all these projects. Yeah. And he has over 1,000 releases on his label, and I have over 800 of them. And some of them come in cereal boxes, like four spray-painted cassettes in a Cheerios box. 
there's a, a Budweiser six pack with a cassette stuffed in each place where the bottle was <laughs> spray painted. So this kind of thing takes up a lot of room. I have shelves of this stuff of just his label. And I collect a lot of noise music from all over the world. Right. Uh, there's a lot of int- really amazing music coming out of Italy. A lot of great wow. jazz music coming out of Italy. There's a, a sax player named Virginia Genta, and she's just a monster player. And uh, what's his name? Urabe. Missa something Urabe. And he's not young, but he's a, a very insane sax player. He's like murderous. And so I listen to him a lot. His records are very hard to get a hold of. I managed to find like uh, three or four, but there's like the 10 I'll never find. They're long gone. Um, and so I, I listen to a lot of different music all the time. In any spare moment I have, I put on music. And so I, but I'm always in acquisition mode. Min, like I said, minimum one record a day. Wow, that's... More like three. And uh, especially when I'm touring, just because I'm moving, you know, uh, I'm making money, I'm working. And, you know, you do a hard night on stage, you know, good boy gets a record. <laughs> and so uh, that's I got that's you. I, I hear do. that, man. I, I go by that uh, a bit, too. But my whole thing is uh, two things of what you said. Uh, you Do you really need that hard copy version of it now that we're in the digital age? Yeah, absolutely. Can, yeah, can you get away the, with just going on a blog no. and rapid sharing it? No, I download music all the time if I can't find the album. If I'm curious about some band, some band looks interesting, has people in it that I know from other bands, I'll type in the name of that record, go online, see if I can find some weird dude's blog site and drag it off. I listen to it. If I like it, I go buy it. I never like the record and don't buy it. The only reason I don't buy it is because I can't find it. Mm -hmm. And there's a few records... uh, by uh, Keiji Haino. He's a, a, an amazing Japanese, uh, Japanese guitar yep. player. He's like my favorite guitar player. There's a few Keiji Haino records I don't have. I just can't find them. Um, so I have the download. But I'm looking. And there's a few uh, records by uh, um, Mizutani, uh, La Realizas La, La de Nudis, another Japanese guitar player, kind of like the father of all of that crazy Japanese guitar stuff. There's a couple of his records I don't have. Um, I have them want listed, and if I ever see them, I'll pounce on them. But I have downloads of them because some charitable soul put them up there knowing that the rest of us are sucking wind trying to find it. Um, But when I find the real copy, I buy it, especially if it's vinyl. I mean, the vinyl always sounds better, and a CD sounds better than an MP3. You know, so vinyl's optimum. If you can't get that, you get the CD. If you can't get that, you download it, but you're always looking for the real one. So one way or the other, I try to pay the artist. And um, sometimes you just buy a used record and the artist got paid for it. Now you're paying some other guy. But I do my best to get a real copy of it. So, um, You know, I've, I've, I have friends who are completely submerged in the noise scene. They, they want to get, and like basically outsider music. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't play outsider music, but I'm a fan of it. However... As, as is with uh, a lot of dance music that I like, my main complaint about outsider music like that, noise, and dance music is the, the output is, is, is just too numerous to keep up with. Is part of the reason for, for collecting it, like I stop as far as the boredoms and Jandek 
and the frogs and things that I can kind of sink my claws into and be by a name or, yeah, that's, or something. That's, that's all pretty safe noise wise. Right. I mean, yeah. All great. But, but I can't get I can't get any deeper because I just I, it's, I, it's not, like quicksand. But it's not like it's not for everybody. I mean, I've been listening to this music for a long time and I kind of welcome the fact that, you know, John Olson, you know, the American tapes guy, he knows that you know, I'm, I'm a fan. So he'll write me and he'll say, dude, send me 80 bucks. And you send him 80 bucks. I, I told him, I said, years ago, I said, look, keep me in the loop. You know, like if you're going to make something, sell me one of everything you make. I'll always buy one of mm -hmm. everything. And I have that with all those labels. They all write me and they go like, dude, hit me with 40 bucks on PayPal. You send it and you get some gummy box of spray painted madness a right. week later. And I do that with all those guys. I like to keep the label happening. I like to support the thing. I actually do play all this stuff. And I kind of like the fact that I have boxes, shelves of just tons of this stuff. So I collect all those labels. And there's a lot of it. Um, I admire the fact that these guys are pro, so prolific. To me, it's like the new jazz. I, I really mm -hmm. like this scene because yeah. it makes rock and roll seem like, you know, kind of been there, done that. This is something else, and I enjoy it. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I like getting these, like, CDRs with a hand Xerox folded thing inside a sandwich bag and hand-numbered, and, you know, I order, and they, 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 they see that it's me ordering, and some of these people, they're um, like, you're into my stuff? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, no way. I'm like, yeah. yeah. So it's fun. And it, it keeps me as a 51-year-old who's seen a lot happen. And it keeps me interested in music. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see the downside to that. But it is overwhelming. It is. It's, it, I, have, I have a ton of this stuff, like boxes of it. And you know, I don't know. I don't have that many shelves to put it all up. So I just kind of gently categorize it. So how do you, how do you put on a shelf like a Budweiser... I have metal shelving, and I just kind of have some of these things in, like, big containers. But a lot of the stuff Olsen does, he'll make this big wire sculpture and shove a cassette in the back of it, and he'll make three of them, and that's the release. <laughs> so I have a lot of these, like, just all kinds of stuff from him. Yeah. He, he just keeps it interesting. And the music, I mean, eh, some, some of the releases are hit or miss. I think he releases everything he does. But... You know, the, when he sells them, they're like six bucks each. So, like, I like to support the artist on eBay. They're like three hundred, but right, because there's like me and a few other people who go at this stuff pretty hard. Well, that's my whole that's my whole issue with that is is um, uh, it seems like a, a kind of a club, and I want in. I just can't keep up. Right, that's my whole thing. Yeah, it, it, so I it, stick it, with. I it stick is very with, clicky. I stick and, with the staples. Yeah, and 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 noise people are a little. You know, they don't get out much all the time. And they're hard to get to know. But a lot of them I know who I am. And right. they're, they're kind of, I, I think they're kind of impressed that some weird old dude likes their stuff. And they're, oh, like, for they're, sure. they're like, you're a fan of ours? Okay. They'd never, you know, me and Thurston Moore. Uh, you two are that's the, the name I hear. Those are the two names. You guys when are I go the two into a names. Store, they go, yeah, Thurston Moore's just here. <laughs> and there's no records left, of course. Well, I mean, when I heard that Thurston uh, was was hooking up with Noctmistium, uh, a black metal band from Chicago, I didn't bat an eye. No, no, there's I no mean, one he hasn't crossed paths with. Yeah. Any of those noise bands? Oh, he's like, yeah, we took them on tour in, in 2000. You're like, yeah, of course you did. Or some weird band from, like, the noise band from Italy, My Cat is an Alien. They're amazing. Two brothers. Of course he put out the records in America. Of course he did the... Thurston's played with everybody. Yeah. I, and anything you're into, he heard it five years ago. I mean, he's yeah. he's really a, an amazing, you know, and he's 
he's relentless. He's, he's just sold a ton of his record collection. And I've never seen it. Ian, my friend Ian's been to his place. I said, what's his place like? He said, you can turn a car around inside that room. Holy shit. Um, and he just sold his noise collection. He has, he sold 4,000 pieces of nothing but his Japanese noise collection. <laughs> and he wrote me, he said, you want to buy this thing from me? I said, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm getting into with that. I mean, I should. But um, I don't know if he still has it all in one piece or not. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know much about Japanese noise music. But Thurston, he's always been that way. I used to go record hunting with Thurston many years ago. I'd be in New York, and he and I would power walk all over the village in West Village. He knew every single record store, and they know him. I mean, that guy's got a head on so much music from punk rock to avant jazz. It's, it's, he's like one of those, he's intelligence anyway. But his thing on music, there's not a lot he hasn't heard, put it that way. Like, you, mm. you, you pull up some record, he's like, oh, yeah, and he pulls up the test pressing of it, You're, of course. <sighs> but, yeah, no, I, I like Thurston. He's a, I've known him a long time. He's an interesting dude. I should go. Uh, I'll let you go. No problem. Thank you very much, Henry. No problem. Walking alone.